I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, well, the Australian election. Scott Morrison, or ScoMo as he's colloquially known, is staying on as Australia's Prime Minister for the next four years. Well, until someone ousts him, of course, which is something that's become a bit of a tradition. But to many, the election result was a bit of a surprise. So today on the Debunking Economics podcast, a bit of a therapy session for those who wanted Labour to win. Maybe it's good news they didn't. And maybe everybody should be happy with this result from both sides for different reasons. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, look, there were three big surprises over the weekend. First of all, uh, the UK came uh, last in the Eurovision Song Contest. But I guess we can look at that and, uh, you know, given the quality of Eurovision, it's actually perhaps the best accolade you can get. Secondly, over the weekend, Manchester City won the FA Cup final. We knew that was going to happen, but 6-0. That is quite a win, isn't it? But the biggest surprise, perhaps, was the Australian general election. Uh, It looks like voters returned Prime Minister Scott Morrison to power, a win for the Liberal National Coalition, uh, even though the opinion polls, well, actually, when I say a win at this stage as we're recording this, it's not clear whether it's going to be an outright win or whether Scott Morrison's going to form a, a minority government. There's one seat in it. But the opinion polls have success, successively shown that it was going to be a Labour win. Now, Steve Keane, you have argued recently on this podcast that this is a good thing for Labour supporters because uh, you think the, econ- the Aussie economy is going to face such a downturn, you wouldn't want to be in government while that happens. And so all those people who are feeling disillusioned this morning because they'd wanted to see uh, uh, an overthrow of the uh, of the coalition government, this might actually be the best outcome. Yeah, I mean, and this, when I first wrote that podcast, it was uh, the wrote of the blog that that uh, was related to on my Patreon page. Mm. It was partly tongue-in-cheek. But I thought about it and I thought, what has happened in the Australian electoral history since the Second World War is that virtually every time a Labor government has taken over, it's taken over during a credit boom, which has been given a huge stimulus to the economy. And then when it gets into office, the credit boom tanks and that what just crashes the economy. So I'll give you, and then in saying this, by the way, I'm saying something that every mainstream economist listening will be laughing now, because according to them, credit plus no role in the economy. They're totally wrong, and I want to give an explanation. I'll explain why they're wrong after I've done some of the, uh, the data and, and talking about this, what happened in the past year. But this is why I had my worries about the future for Australia. So if I look back at the Whitlam government, the Whitlam government came to power in December 1972, and pretty much as soon as they came into power, something which was independent of them because it was a global phenomenon, was a huge increase in credit-based demand in the global, in the global economy, including Australia, and credit, which is defined by me as the change in debt, change in private debt, uh, because what credit is, is money in your account that comes from a bank loan. The bank loan is the change in your outstanding debt that aggregates to the national level. So we go back to when uh, when Whitlam was elected, which, of course, was the end of 1972. 
credit was running at 6% of GDP, and GDP itself was running at 4% per annum. So you can pretty much add the two and say about a 10% of GDP boost to demand in the economy. It then credit that went from 6% to 16%. So that's a huge increase. Mm. It then peaked in the middle of 1975 and fell by 76 to um, 10%. Kept on going and finally bottomed out at, uh, at 6% again in 1978. Now, what actually drives the change in GDP is the change in the change in... Sorry, what drives the change in, change in GDP growth is change in credit, the second order of this thing. Taking a look at that, the change in credit, how fast credit was growing, changed from over 8% in 1974 to minus 4% in 1976, which was when Woodland came the end of 1975. That was when Woodland crashed out of the economy. Now, that downturn was blamed on all sorts of stuff, bad management by the Labor government, the Camelani loans, repair, all sorts of stuff. But it was actually a global credit bubble that Whitlam government had the misfortune of coming into power when the bubble began and being in office when the bubble burst. And that's when you got the bad, uh, the, you know, that we can't manage the economy argument. Yeah. Fast forward to the Keating, uh, Keating uh, government, and you find again on an even bigger scale the same story of a credit boom beginning when Labor was in power, and this, this particular credit boom began in the, the sort of mid-1984, at that stage, credit was 8% of GDP, went to 22%. It then plunged in the recession we had to do to minus 2%, which is the only time it's gone negative in the post-war period. Again, the same stage of the change of credit. That went from plus 8 to minus 10. When that happened, it looked like heating stuffed up the economy. Yes, he played a role in that. I'm going to I'm happily argue that with anybody that uh, some of the policies Keating put in place set up a credit bubble and then a bust afterwards. But the bust occurred on their watch. Bad managers turned over to Howard. The worst of the lot, of course, was poor Kevin Rudd. Now, I mentioned I'm mentioning, I know there's too many numbers of people that take him and I'm trying to give them a form of economic therapy. But the credit bubble in, in, uh, that led under Howard began at 8% of GDP in the, just after 2002, it peaked at 24% mm. in 2008. It fell to 2%. That's an enormous plunge in demand. It happens on Rudd's watch. Now, Rudd, of course, did the stimulus package that softened the blow and stopped us going into negative credit that time round. But again, they got the blame, can't manage the economy, hand over to the Liberals. They've ridden another boom, which has taken credit from the bottom that was in Rudd's period of 2%, of GDP up to 16%, which is a huge rise, it then started to fall from that point. And as it comes down, it's, it's bouncing around up and down at the moment, as it comes down, the economy will have less demand, in it, particularly the housing bubble bursts. The economy will go into a funk. That will happen regardless of who is Prime Minister. So and whatever their policies, time, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's going to happen on Morrison's watch. Mm. But this is one time, rather than saying Labor's to blame, Labor's to blame, but this time it's going to be Liberals to blame. And they are very hard to yeah. They are so far from uh, being aware of that, aren't they? Because if you look at the yeah. the Liberal Manifesto, for example, they do talk about debt, but obviously it's all about government debt. Government debt, yeah. Getting get and getting even down. even there, there's a huge amount of hypocrisy. And I know this isn't the point you're trying to make, but it's just an interesting side point because they do say we're paying down Labour's debt, but you know, in fact, when they took office, mm. the uh, the government debt was 165 billion. Now it's 341 billion or more. That was June July last year. So they've actually doubled mm. government debt in their office. Uh, but I mean, but even so, you know, it's um, yeah, they haven't got. They, they, this is just not on the horizon. The idea of, of private debt, 
not just in Australia, but but around the world. So, um, you know, it's that's politics. You miss the key point. Yeah, and by missing the key point, in other words, they're walking into a, a credit crunch because credit plays no role in their thinking. So when the credit crunch hits, they'll be in charge. And it's then what do they do mm. to try to cope with the downturn? Now, uh, and if they stumble, which they will, then it'll be the Liberals who wear the opprobrium for it. And then you won't have the narrative. You can't trust Labor with the economy. So I'd say we can't trust the Liberals with the economy either. So it's the it's it's giving the chance to the narrative for once, not to be the Labor Party's in power when the economy tanks. It's the Labor it's, it's the, the party that's in power when credit tanks is the one that gets the blame. This time it'll be Liberals, not Labor. So that is it's small solace, I know for many, many people because so many people are thinking about you know, ending uh, the uh, you know the discriminatory policies uh, and refugees stuff. Not that Labor's much better on that front, frankly. No. Uh, the, what, protecting the ABC. Uh, uh, you know they're, they're sick of Morrison. Uh, the whole the whole Liberal Party politics, the the coal, the environment stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, that's all something uh, that we're we're going to see lots of negatives about. But the the, the we, we, we'll have to cope with those. Yeah. But. Just on that, the I think uh, Giannis, Giannis Varakis's uh, Varakis's uh, reaction to it, my daughter's reaction, he said to the news of the Australian election: "Goodbye ABC, goodbye Great Barrier Reef, goodbye public services, goodbye renewable energy, goodbye public health, goodbye public education, and uh, goodbye stunning river systems." Actually, I think he's probably kidding himself or his daughter, as if if they think that the Labor Party would have delivered all of those things. I suspect not. Yeah, they would. They would, they would, they would have delivered some things, but nothing, nothing near enough. Uh, and and yes, there's going to be. I mean, the ABC. I think they're going to try to privatise the ABC. Uh, they're certainly going to try to get even with the ABC because always blame the ABC for any of the negative coverage they got. So yes, all that stuff is going to happen. But they are going to walk into an economic storm, which could start in the next six months to a year. Uh, and when that does happen, all their ideas about returning the government to surplus, um, presiding over good unemployment levels, you know, falling unemployment. That will all go out the window, and they'll be in panic. Mm. And in that panic, they may well do the right thing for the wrong reasons. This is what happened with the Bush administration, which, of course, copped the beginning of the financial crisis. It began in 2007, late August 2007, as the beginning of the downturn. Uh, by the middle of 2008, it was clearly a disaster. That's when you had um, the uh, Treasury Secretary at the time coming out and saying, you know, if we don't get $700 billion, may God may God have mercy on our souls because we'll preside over the collapse of capitalism. They went into the panic mode. They threw a massive amount of money at the economy, handed over to Obama to continue their same throwing money at Wall Street rather than Main Street. But it revived the economy enough to avoid going totally down. And I think the Liberals will be forced into the same thing. And what that means is they're going to go massively into deficit when they're selling themselves to the government that can run a surplus. Running a surplus is stupid. I could talk about that shortly but they'll be forced to run a deficit. How is the Murdoch press going to handle defending the Liberals when they're running a deficit? If it was Labor running a deficit, attack mode. If it's Liberals running a deficit, what the hell can they say? So there's ways in which this is a a better period to see the Liberals fumble with the credit crisis than having it land in Labor's lap once again. Well, the Liberal Party has said on housing affordability that, uh, I mean, Labor's answer on housing affordability, because that's, you know, that's what, uh, I mean, houses are going to become more affordable because they're, <laughs> because they're losing value so much. 
Um, yeah, falling, it's, it's a great way to get first-time buyers. Prices in falling, wonderful. But the Liberal Party, basically the coalition has said they're going to help more Australians become homeowners. They're going to support more investment in the housing market to provide more affordable options for renters, but will not undermine the value of Australian homes or investment properties. I'm not quite sure how they're going to perform that magic trick, but it's too late because... Uh, they already have, or it's already happening. Yeah, and this, and this is what is what's worked in the past, and it worked for Rudd as well, was to drag first-time buyers into the market by giving them a large amount of money, which they then took to the banks and made it ten times as much money by leverage borrowed borrowing, and then bid up the price of the houses by pretty much all of that so ten times the grant they got, and then we had a housing boom. Uh, but that was only possible when we had a lower level of housing debt than we have right now. At the moment, Australia is carrying a housing debt level of about 120% of GDP. Now, that is the highest on the planet outside Switzerland. And two things about Switzerland. First of all, it's running a huge balance of, pay, of trade surplus, and that can make up for the... Uh, for a down, for a, if that can help you carry a higher level of household debt, um, and that's what I think is happening there. Plus, also, a lot of that money, a lot of the recording for Switzerland is, you know, the old Swiss names bank account stuff which is actually transacted from the rest of the world for this, you know, the, the, Swiss, this, the Swiss banking system. We don't have that. The only comparable country to us is Ireland. Because Ireland has a, a private debt level of about 118% for household sector. And they run a trade deficit as well. They've now plunged right down to 50%. And that's what you know, that caused a huge you know, collapse in the Irish economy back in the 2008-2012 period. Now, so we are carrying a global record in that sense of a level of household debt. We're not going to, I can't see even the most generous so-called handouts to first-home buyers dragging them back to the market again. This probably isn't going to work. And therefore, the, the stimulus won't work to recover the house price direction. And the, the, the double whammy for the economy when there's falling house prices is people reducing the level of debt. They're not increasing it. They're writing off, they're, they're going bankrupt, some of them, because they they don't have the income anymore. The credit demands fall, and so they've lost their job. Uh, they're paying down their, their debt. They're, by paying down their debt, you reduce the amount of money in the economy. There's less turnover that way. That's what causes a plunge. And the house price plunge precedes the economic plunge. When that economic plunge comes along, the Liberals are going to be in panic. And that, is, to me, is, is, is a better way of saying it's not Labor versus Liberal. It's not understanding credit, not understanding the economy, and been trying to do the wrong thing of running a government surplus, which Bowen was bragging about, we'll get back to surplus faster than the Liberals. Now, before they do All that... All these things were wrong-headed. Before they do that, before they start pumping money into the economy in, in, in blind panic, which you're saying, you know, is, is actually going to be... A, a good thing for all the wrong reasons. They are obviously going to say, well, we need to pump more money by giving people more money, so we're going to cut tax, which is actually something both parties have said. Uh, they, they both basically said tax cuts for the middle class. They might have different ideas of what the middle class is, uh, but paying less seems to be the uh, the common promise to the voter in, in this election. I guess they would argue, well, yeah, if you've got more money in your pocket, then you can pay down that debt and you can keep the economy, you know, growing. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, in many ways, in terms of their understanding of how the economy functions and talking about government running a surplus, it was basically Tweedledum versus Tweedledee on that front. For sure. Neither of them understand what's happening. So I'd rather have the Liberals in a panic than Labor in a panic when it happens. And then when that does occur, people can say, well, they're both promising to do the same thing. They're both saying, let's get the government back to surplus and it'll make the economy uh, stable and, and, and safe. 
And in fact, they it's in the context of a collapse in the private spending, debt finance private spending, that plunges. What will happen is the economy goes down and government spending will go up or go from running a deficit to a, a surplus if they attempt to get there to an unintended deficit. And people hopefully will start saying, well, maybe the formula they had to run the surplus for the government is a good idea. It doesn't make much sense. And that's the lesson Australians need to learn because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, when you This is getting into the... And I'm, 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 I'm throwing too many numbers at what I'm calling a therapy session here for the uh, morning progressives. But the basic logic is you if you save money, somebody else disavows. If I, let's just say there's a $1,000 in circulation that turns over once a year and I've got 500 of it and you've got 500 of it, we're a two-person economy, I'm spending 500 on you, you're spending 500 on me, total amount is 1000 uh, you know, Eddie, you're 500 spending on you and 500 you're spending on me. If I just spend, just start to spend 100 less on you and there's this 1000 in circulation, I'm going to accumulate $100 that year. My account's going to go from 500 to 600 Yours is going to go from 500 to 400 mm. My saving causes your dissaving. So what actually happens when you try to save money like that is the actual turnover of money slows down and the economy goes down. Yeah. And if you want to save money, you, you see in the aggregate savings is zero. And this is a little accounting thing people in mainstream economics don't have their heads around and most of the public doesn't either. If you save, if, if there's a fixed amount of money in the economy and you decide to save to accumulate more of it, the rest of the economy has to accumulate precisely negative what you accumulate. Mm. And then, therefore, that doesn't work. The only way you can actually have a, a growing economy in, in this sense, and it's okay, I'm leaving out the ecological stuff for the moment, which is one of my main interests, but if we want a you know, numerically growing economy over time, you have to be creating new money by somebody who can afford to go into debt. Now, can we afford to go into debt, the public? No, but the, government, from the banks. but the government can. The government can because when it's the government's creating its own money by having a, a national currency. We all have the joke recently about the fifty dollar note having a, a, a misprint on it. I think uh, yeah. the responsibility is spelled, spelled irresponsibly as a mistake in the, in the spelling. Uh, nonetheless, the government produced forty six million of those, and the government's got the right to produce those forty six million because it owns the bank, it owns the mint. So it doesn't have any possibility running out of money because it creates the stuff. If we try to create the money ourselves, we end up in jail for counterfeiting. So we don't have the capacity the state has to create money. And therefore, what the government debt tends to be is a record of how much money it's created in the past. So the government, so long as you're running a trade surplus or a balanced budget in trade, which is I differ from modern monetary theory in this argument, but as long as you've got a, a trade surplus, you can continue doing it indefinitely. Mm. Running a trade deficit, you have a limitation. And I think Australia faces that limitation. Too much government spending could actually cause a trade increase in the trade, and that would cause the plunge in the currency and the crisis that way. The country like Japan, which did a debt crisis back in 1990, 30 years later, has had a huge low price in government debt. Its government debt has gone from 40% of GDP to 250%, enormous increase in government debt levels. Yeah. No problem because it's running a trade surplus. Now, Australia is still got a GDP around zero, though, and possibly about to go into negative uh, with figures. GDP growth, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but it is it is it is wrong-headed to say the government should run a surplus because the government runs a surplus. The non-government, which is the rest of the world, yeah. related to the government, runs a deficit for precisely as much. So and the thing is, can you afford to run a deficit? 
Australia, if you run private sector, run a deficit, you've got to borrow money from the banks. Can you afford to get more indebted to the banks? Or you run a deficit internationally. Can we afford that? No. So the government can, should be running a deficit to provide a matching surplus in private sector accounts. Now, how this that is, deficit is created, though, I mean, it, I mean, there's two ways. On the one is that the government just issues the money and then gets that into into circulation somehow, and the other way surely is through tax cuts. So, if we look at uh, you know what's been done in the United States, for example, I mean, the government has run heavily into debt and is having to issue bonds at unprecedented levels to try and cover these tax cuts that uh, uh, Donald Trump has introduced. Now, sure, most of those tax cuts have been felt by the rich, but have he been uh, a, a little bit more um, measured in his approach and uh, managed to make sure those cuts were cutting across all sectors? Isn't that way of, of buoying things along? And uh, It is. It, it will be a stimulus to the economy. I don't think it's going to be big enough in the Australian case to over over. over Right no, the because they're going to try and balance the budget at the same time. So they're going to, yeah, they're going to, they're going to cut public services as well. Cutting services, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. So it will be a mess when they're going into it. But if they hit by a recession they're not expecting, they're not ready for, they'll be in panic. The Murdoch press will be paralysed about how they criticise the government that they supported into office when the government's doing what they said the opposition would do if they got in power. They'll mm. be in a funk. We can sit back and watch the fun. But the Morrison government being in panic and the Murdoch press not knowing what the hell to say. Now, that is better than being in the other situation where the crash occurs on Labor's watch. Labor gets by the media. It looks like the story is consistent. Can't trust the Labor Party. Bang, we have a reactionary form of the Liberal Party we have at the moment. And I think, thank God, we've got rid of Tony Abbott. That's unpositive for the body politic that that particular camp has been kicked into, you know, go surfing, Tony. Don't, uh, you're not going to be in Parliament anymore. That, that is a positive. But if, if, if we had the same thing as, as last time, I'll, I'll go back to my favourite. Keating won. Uh, uh, Houston lost the unlosable election and Keating went on for an extra few years. Mm. Then we got John Howard. Now, I know John Houston. I've met him a couple of times. He's a decent being. He had a more clear-headed idea of the conventional economic policies than, than Howard had. There's no way that man would have done the children overboard not. He was never have done the, the racist stuff that ended up happening to, to, to migrants. We got all that through John Howard. If Keating had lost that election and Houston had taken over, the economy would have... He actually was in the recovery phase then, so Houston would have got a few years. We wouldn't have had the whole tragedy of the... the, 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 the let's call it racist. Simplify summarize it. Racist transportation policy uh, and, and pandering to the redneck stuff. If the Tampa had occurred on John Houston's watch, we would have taken the people on board and as refugees. We wouldn't have done the travesty that happened with the Tampa election. Keating winning that election was, was relatively, for the labour movement in general, for the Australian population in general, it was a, it was a, it was a disaster mm. because we got down Howard instead. So this time round, I'd rather put up with Morrison. Thank God it's not you know, Abbott we're losing to. Uh, you get you hit Morrison. It happens on Morrison watch. Then this fact that the, the economic downturn occurs on the Liberal Party watch hopefully begins to wipe out that narrative that Labor crashes the economy. But it's, it's global taxes and credit that crashes the economy. Yeah, let's happen on Liberals' watch rather than Labor. 
So Labour is, I mean, if you look through, I mean, maybe it'll change the Labour Party as well. Maybe Labour will come back with a more progressive approach because it is, it's hardly, but, you know, if you look at progressive governments around the world, I mean, if you, I mean, some people might say it's extreme to compare to the Labour Party in the UK where they're trying to renationalise a great deal of things, uh, where they uh, are trying to reintroduce free education for all, you know, to get rid of student debt and, and all that sort of good stuff. I mean, there's no way in the world right now you could push that sort of agenda in Australia because it's too far right. The, you know, the person in the street would, uh, would, would probably reel at the expense of all of that without understanding that, you know, governments can create money. So maybe, maybe, if, uh, maybe if things go badly wrong, I mean, if, if, you know, if progressives are looking for something to take out of all of this, maybe they'll get a more progressive government at the end of it than they would this time around because they were trying to uh, move to the center ground you look at what was you know s- some of the arguments that were being held i mean they were it was pretty small stuff wasn't it, it i mean there's the argument that one of the reasons they lost the election is because of the this whole thing about uh, franking credits the rebate that you pay to shareholders so for people who don't understand that a company company makes a profit uh, it pays tax on that profit, then it pays dividends. And the argument is because the money's already been taxed as a profit, shareholders shouldn't have to pay it. So they get a, a credit for their income tax that they would have paid on that dividend, which is sort of piffling stuff, really. And it really only applies to high income earners because your income tax has got to be higher than company tax for it to be worthwhile. But that has been strangely under Australian politics. I think anywhere else in the world would, would you think, well, that's small stuff. It only applies to a small number of people. It's probably not a great deal of money, but it's been a big, fo- a lot of focus uh, in, in this election, ra- you know, rather than the uh, the big picture stuff. Australian politics just seems to deal with these micro issues which get blown out of all proportion by the right wing media. And it was because we had such a growth without the technical recession. We went for one negative quarter uh, during the global financial crisis, but only once when that technical recession was recorded. And, and, and therefore, you had this long period where the, even the progressive voters in the country haven't had to learn about what it's like to go through an economic crisis. Mm. And if you look at what's happened uh, with the UK, what's happened like the modern monetary theory discussion in American politics right now, I'm sure a major reason why that is prominent is because of the crisis in 2008. And that traumatised people and they made them think what we thought would didn't really work. Now, if you have a modern monetary theory discussion in Australia, you don't even get the first base with the media. And with most of the public, whereas in America, because of AOC, because of Bernie Sanders, because of Stephanie Kelton and the whole modern monetary theory group, uh, this is a front-page discussions uh, of the New York Times. It's sending up its motions in Congress. There's nowhere near that level of maturity. Mm. Australian debate, as you're saying, and part of the reason for the lack of maturity is we experienced the bad times yeah. to delay. But each time we delay it, the level of private debt has risen. If I go back, I'll, I'm going to take you some numbers again. Uh, but if you go back to when the Whitlam government uh, lost lost power, then at that stage, the level of private debt was, and I'm looking at my numbers here, was 20% of GDP. You go up to when Keating lost, it was 115% of GDP. You go up to when Rudd lost, it was 190% of GDP. You go up to the peak now, it's 205% of GDP. So each time we've delayed it, we've accumulated a high level of private debt, which means we're falling from a higher cliff. In America's case, compare America, 
America peaked in the global financial crisis at 170%, is now at 150. So we're sitting 50 or 60% of GDP above their level of mm. It's a higher cliff we're jumping from. And it's about time, unfortunately, we jump off that cliff and let what it feels like to be fall down from it, then look at it and say, should we have got into that in the first place? How did we get here? You then look at, well, maybe the government trying to run surpluses actually helped trigger this. And you then can get a change of narrative as has occurred in America and obviously also happened in the UK. But the Australian debate remains so immature and if it, it, had, a, it had another crash on the watch of a Labor government, that immaturity would have been maintained. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, how money has shifted in Australia from what would normally be a, a government expense to a private expense. So you just need to look at uh, you know, how many people send their kids to schools, which are private schools in Australia. They, 35% of all school kids in Australia go to private schools. It's up from 23% in 1970. In the UK right now, it's 7%. In Australia, it's 35%. So you get all those, you get all those school fees which people are paying, which is actually a government expense. And having said that, the crazy thing is, of course, the government then goes and pays for them as well. So uh, the independent schools in Australia are getting $9,000 per student, uh, whereas government schools are only getting, you know, getting 13000 So you still, whereas, you know, uh, whereas in, in this country, in the UK, the government gives nothing to independent schools. If you want to send your kid to an independent school, pay for it yourself none of it's coming from the from the taxpayer so it's all it's, so and there's this user pays type mentality as well which exists in australia so it is quite it's quite a fundamental capitalist nation which hasn't embraced sort of the mic i don't know i think it used to didn't it this idea of a mixed economy uh which we seem to have lost we lost in the 80s and Australia seems to have embraced it more than more than most. So actually trying to get a progressive government in Australia is a big ask because the nation's psyche has moved so far from that way of thinking. What's actually helped us with developing that psyche is as, as the physical economy has been downgraded, there was no more car manufacturers in Australia. Yeah. And the car manufacturers that were worth there were all, you know, foreign, 100% foreign-owned subsidiaries of General Motors and Ford and Mitsubishi and everybody else. But at least there were the manufacturing jobs and skills were there. They're completely gone. We've papered it over by what the macro business website uh, calls houses and holes. We've dug holes in the ground and sold our resources off. We haven't done any processing domestically. We've put that into more expensive houses. We haven't built the infrastructure and the physical economy. So when a downturn comes, we can no longer rely upon credit or house prices to rescue us. And we're going to see how much damage we've done. And then in that aftermath, we start to learn a lesson that in that sense the UK and the US have already learned. So why did he win? You know, we've got a, we've got a man now in Australia who's Prime Minister. As you say, it's, he's, it, it's, a, it's a better choice um, than his, his predecessor. Or not his predecessor, actually. So it's a, 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 the predecessor of the predecessor, predecessor, the predecessor uh, who uh, who lost out on Saturday night. But we still have a man. I mean, maybe people needed stability. Maybe that's the the pure argument that they thought. Well, it's let's try and have a prime minister for more than a year. You know, it's better than the devil you know than be you know uh, than somebody perhaps you don't know. But we've we've still got a man who says remarkably stupid things, like calling his wife his love machine. Uh, which oh, you you're kidding! I didn't know that. One. Bring, he brought his, okay. uh, you know, bringing a lump of coal into Parliament to show how little he cares about climate change. And then there was, you know, when he was j- joking about uh, standing underwater in Nauru. I mean, he's not one of the world's great diplomats, is he? And yet he got in. Why did? Why? Why did it happen? Do you think? Oh, again, I think because 
wasn't enough passion on the other side. I saw a couple of arguments about mm. this and some of the year reports after the event, you know, why did this happen? And partly said so there was a real passion about it, right? There was a real passion of all competing with the Accord, which I was part of, by the way. And uh, and there was also passion about the obvious. There's no passion about Shorten. Uh, it was just kind of, let's replace incompetence with competence. That was about the message. And then, as you said, things like the franking credits. Um, it's a nonsense. Those, yeah. Yeah, that was enough to say, well, I don't want to risk that particular one. And it was in that sense, it was a pocket election. When people thought it might be a election about climate change, et cetera, et cetera. It was, thank God, in Tony Abbott's own electorate, but it wasn't across the entire country. And there's been a degree of alienation, which we see in Queensland, between people who want to protect the environment and people who want to have jobs. Now, for a while, we can believe that those two uh, are alternatives. At some point, we're going to realise otherwise. Mm. But there's no way that that argument was won people in Queensland. And unless you win it at the national level, you're not going to win it at all. And so, the, but I think if they hit pocket nerve, the fact there was no particular passion to change over. And Morrison, you know, was at least in terms of, I mean, the guy does have some skill at marketing. He did, of course, create the Where of the Bloody Hell Are You campaign. I rest my case. Uh, but, but not as, not as incompetent as, as Tony is. You know, he, he didn't knight this one. He didn't knight Prince Philip. No. That's one positive for Morrison. <laughs> no, that's because he'd already been knighted, perhaps. But no, I don't think he's, right, quite, yeah. he's quite the royal, is he, that Tony Abbott was. Yeah. But look, what about so generally? Then, generally, we are, around the world, though, we are shifting to the right. I mean, we've got Trump. The UK could well end up with Boris, although, you know, Theresa May is, you know, with a hostile, hostile environment policy and austerity was enough for many. You look at countries like Hungary, for example, which has shifted so far to the right. In Hungary now, um, they're so, uh, so against foreigners that they now, you don't pay tax. If you have four children, they want to grow the local population. They so hate foreigners that they will give you complete tax exemption if you uh, become a, a baby factory. And, you know, we're going to see right-wing parties sweeping, well, in, in Hungary, 70% of the vote in the European elections this week is expected to go to far-right parties. In, in Austria, we've got the Freedom Party that's expected to get 26% of the vote. In the UK, the Brexit Party is going to get 30%. There's this real tide towards nationalism, and Australia just seems to be caught up in that. Maybe we should you know, not look at it at the local level and just say this is part of the, the world picture. Not sure why that's happening, apart from income disparity is is clearly part of it, and that means we hate foreigners. Uh, and and Australia perhaps is just part of that time. Well, uh, partly I actually take it back to the whole embrace of neoliberalism by the left, and in this case, Keating and Hawke played a major role in this because mm. uh, they the basic argument is after after Muslim government experience was we need to be better economic managers. What does that mean? We read the economic textbooks and do what the economic textbooks tell us to do. And then we do the social stuff as well. So we have a booming economy courtesy of follow-up, sound economic advice, or we do progressive social policies. That sound economic advice is why I wrote debunking economics. It's nonsense. It's bad ideas about an economy. But the economic theory itself is wrong. What then happens is when you do that sort of stuff in an advanced industrialised economy, it ends up destroying your industrial structure, so the workers lose their jobs. They then look at the so-called left, and see them as being people who don't care about their jobs and have actually, you know, wiped out their employment, leaving them going from being, you know, skilled industrial workers working at Henny Penny, if they're lucky, or being on welfare, not caring about the fact that their factories are now run down and so on, and doing all this nasty left stuff. And what happened was he ended up undermining not just the the economic side of the 
left, which always used to be the support in the working class. Uh, it also undermined the socially progressive policies put forward. And they have the working class, the, the middle, the lower classes, is the farmers, the working with their hands to some extent. Like saying, you're a bunch of socialists who don't care about our, about our livelihoods. We're going to vote with the conservatives. So to some extent, I want to see the neoliberal agenda de-legitimised and Australia has kept it alive for longer. And in that sense, the Labor Party's program is the classic neoliberal thing. And yeah, I, if, if the it occurred on their watch again, it would have discredited giving a, a control on the economy. The liberals, it's rather harder to Tell you, you know what we've got a really we've got a really bad line all of a sudden, so we'll probably leave it there. I guess the, I guess okay. the, I guess the you know the the upshot for everybody is if you are feeling a little bit disillusioned about the uh, the, the turn of events in Australia, uh, bear with it for four years because it's going to be a rocky four years. Whoever was in 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 power, uh, and maybe this will become a turning point, and maybe the Labour Party will feel uh, renewed and uh, invigorated. And and perhaps we'll have a clear understanding, actually, and less of a neoclassic approach to their uh, their attitude towards economics, and be a true progressive party at the end of this. Perhaps with uh, with a bit of passion thrown in as well. That would be nice. Yeah, I think that's a good summary, man. All right, see you soon. Okay. And that is it for this time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We are back next time talking about the sharing economy and how that is changing our lives. Uh, Tune in for that one. Thanks for listening this time. We'll see you again soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.